I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we discuss a crucial issue, taxation and the Constitution. The House and Senate are currently working to present a tax reform bill to the president. But before Congress can discuss the specifics of, of a tax reform, it must comply with a number of constitutional constraints, ranging from Article I's taxing clause and the 16th Amendment to the Senate's Byrd Rule on reconciliation. What are the constitutional constraints on Congress's taxing power, and how can we understand the constitutional issues that the current tax debate will raise. Joining us to discuss these crucial questions are two of America's leading constitutional scholars on tax law and the Constitution. Both of them contributed to the interactive Constitution's explainers about the taxing power. Joseph Fishkin is professor of law at the University of Texas at Austin Law School, where he teaches constitutional law. He wrote the interactive Constitution essay on the 16th Amendment with Professor William Forbath, also at the University of Texas at Austin. And Stephen Willis is professor of law at the University of Florida Levin College of Law, where he teaches courses on tax law, accounting, and finance. He co-wrote an interactive constitution essay on the taxing clause with Professor Neil Siegel of Duke. Uh, Joseph, uh, Steve, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having us. My pleasure. Let's begin with the history and meaning of the taxing power. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution says, The Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, but all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. Uh, Steve, you co-wrote the Interactive Constitution on the Taxing Clause. Help our listeners understand what the framers had in mind when they talked about the need to create uniform uh, imposts, taxes, and duties, and also explain to us how it was that for most of American history, federal revenue came from import taxes raised by the tariff and excise taxes on whiskey, which provoked the whiskey rebellion rather than the income tax. What did the framers have in mind when they required uniform apportionment of direct taxes? Well, uniformity and apportionment are two very different things. The, the uniformity requirement in Article One, Section 8 applies to duties, imposts, and excises, as you said. Those are not clearly labeled taxes, surprisingly, which is a, a separate issue we can discuss in a moment. Uniformity requires, at least according to the Supreme Court, that whatever rate structure exists apply the same in every state. So uniformity is a fairly easy standard to meet. It isn't always met, but it is a fairly easy one. Great. Well, say a little bit more about the debate over what counted as uh, a tax that had to be apportioned. In the 1796 Hilton decision argued by Alexander Hamilton, the Supreme Court had upheld the constitutionality of excise taxes, such as the hated whiskey taxes, holding that only direct taxes like head taxes or capitulation capitation taxes or taxes on enslaved people had to be apportioned. What, what did the Hilton decision hold and what were, the, what were the consequences of it? Well, Hilton came down on, uh, was deciding a case that involved the use of a carriage. 
And the question was, is that an excise, which has to be uniform, and that's what they decided, or is it a direct tax on the carriage itself or the ownership of the property, which would have to be apportioned? Apportionment's a very difficult thing to do. As you said, a, a per-person capitation tax could work if we had a tax of a dollar a person or $10 a person. But it has to come out to the exact same number per capita in every single state. So a dollar a person would work out because it would be a dollar for every person in every state. In contrast, a dollar per carriage or a dollar per acre of land would not work out the same per capita because there's not the same number of carriages in every state. There's not the same number of acres of land in every state as compared to the population. So that could never work. But the Hilton decision decided that a tax on the use of the carriage was an excise. And that was groundbreaking because all that had to do was be uniform. And it didn't really matter whether there were thousands of carriages in Maryland but very few carriages in South Carolina or whatever it might be. That was irrelevant as long as the rate was the same in every state. So that was very, very important that this was an excise. And as you said, most of the revenue raised back in those days was by either imposts or duties, import taxes, or excises. There, there simply were no direct taxes. Great. That's very helpful. So, um, uh, Joseph, t- t- take us up through the 19th century. Uh, one way to avoid the contentious debate over tariffs, which divided the North and South leading up to the Civil War, was to adopt a temporary income tax. In 1861, the Lincoln administration imposed the first federal income tax. Lincoln and his secretary of the Treasury didn't think that the income tax was a direct tax that had to be apportioned according to the states, according to population. However, um, as you note in your explainer on the uh, 16th Amendment, in the Pollock case in 1895, by a five to four vote, the Supreme Court struck down a federal income pa- tax passed in 1894, which included a 2% tax on incomes over $4,000, holding that taxes on incomes were direct taxes that had to be apportioned among the states, and in doing so, it disregarded the reasoning of the 1796 Hilton decision. Uh, tell us more about uh, the Pollock case, the debates leading up to it, and the reaction to the Pollock case. Sure. So the story for the first hundred years from the Hilton case, which you all helpfully set up already, is basically a story of limited federal innovation in taxation being upheld by the courts as not direct tax. And that approach really made a lot of sense, especially, one might think, after the Civil War, because the direct tax requirements purpose in the first place is really very much bound up with slavery and the three-fifths compromise. The purpose of this direct tax requirement, taxes be apportioned, was really taxes were um, to be put onto the state's according to roughly the state's wealth population, including three-fifths of slaves, was roughly a measure of which states had the people and the money. And the idea was if the southern states were going to get extra representation for having their slaves who would not, in fact, get to vote, um, they at least would have to pay extra taxes should anything like a requisition, um, like under the Articles of Confederation, go out where the federal government needed money from the state. So that was the original idea. And as, as the federal government gradually 
came to come up with new taxes to um, get more revenue needs that became especially acute in wartime, they um, came up with a series of innovations, including the income tax, all of which were upheld. But by the 1890s, something was different. And what was different, really, was the political economy of the time. Uh, This was a period in which nation-spanning corporations were a force in economics and politics, the railroads and the great trusts of the era. This was the Gilded Age. And along with these new fortunes and new corporate agglomerations of economic might, there was also um, a, a political force from the left, a sort of the rise of socialism in America and the rise of uh, William Jennings Bryan, the populists, who were making claims that um, that we needed much more economic redistribution, taxation of the wealthy, and um, and other related claims. So in Pollock, uh, in 1895, the Supreme Court confronts an income tax and decides that this tax can't be upheld because essentially it's an unfair um, assault upon capital that was in the words of Justice Field's um, concurring opinion. And the court, which was a very conservative court, uh, feared that this income tax was the beginning of uh, a real turn to socialism. And I think their interpretation um, moved a number of substantial steps away from where the president had been uh, because they were afraid of what this income tax pretended uh, for the future. So the reaction to um, Pollock was swift and fierce, and it electrified American politics. This decision became one of the central political fights of the era um, and led eventually to uh, the passage of the 16th Amendment. Thanks so much uh, for that. So, Steve, take us uh, between Pollock and the passage of the 16th Amendment, and, and just to say, as as Joseph and uh, his co-writer note in their joint explainer on the 16th Amendment, Pollock made the federal income tax impossible to administer because if an income tax were apportioned among the states, a poor state with the same population as a rich state would need to bear the same total tax liability. Pollock was met by popular Outrage, uh, Joseph notes in his explainer that President Taft later reflected nothing has ever injured the prestige of the Supreme Court more. Taft believed that Pollock was wrongly decided, but he thought that uh, for Congress to pass another federal income tax statute would embarrass the Supreme Court, and his devotion to the court's legitimacy was so great that he supported uh, tepidly uh, the passage of the 16th Amendment. So. Uh, was Pollock wrong? Tell us about the response to it, and how was the 16th Amendment passed, and what were the framers of the 16th Amendment trying to achieve? Well, I wouldn't go so far as to say Pollock was wrong. Um, it was certainly controversial, but it was it was quite limited in what it applied to. It did not apply to all income. It applied to income from certain sources, and it, it, it would have applied to, again, uh, income mostly from land. For example, in a subsequent decision, which is interesting name of Stone versus Flint, Flint versus Stone, 
the Supreme Court in the early 20th century held that a tax on the income of a corporation is an excise. It's an excise on the privilege of being a corporation. So that carved out a great deal. So much of what we view as an income tax today is actually not an income tax. It's an excise. And much of what we pay that's part of the Internal Revenue Code is not actually authorized by the 16th Amendment because so much of what we think of as income taxes today are actually excises and would have been permitted under Hilton and would have been permitted under Pollock. But there were some narrow areas that Pollock would not allow to be taxed, and therefore we ultimately in 1913 adopted the 16th Amendment, which said we no longer have to apportion a tax on income from a source derived. That did change some of it. It, it, it said that we don't have to have an apportionment for an income tax if it's a direct tax. But it did add the additional requirement that the income had to be derived. And that's, ve- that's a very important factor in, in tax law today. I can't simply tax an increase in wealth, for example. If your house goes up in value, I can't tax that under the 16th Amendment because it hasn't yet been from a source derived. There has to be some sort of event. That's what the 16th Amendment would provide for something constitutional under the 16th Amendment. Now, that does not mean, and though I don't have any cases to say it, that does not mean that I couldn't have an excise on the value of your house. We just don't have national property taxes right now. Uh, That would raise questions of whether that's a direct tax or whether it's an excise on the use of your house, like the use of the carriage. And we just, we sort of sloughed that away and finessed it by adopting the 16th Amendment. And I would argue it's somewhat of a pretense that we try to justify everything as tax lawyers under the 16th Amendment when arguably we still have the power to impose an excise, which is very, very broad. For example, all the taxes on corporations. Thanks so much for that, and thanks for putting the 16th Amendment on the table. So you read the language, and let's read it again to remind our listeners that Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes, comma, from whatever source derived, comma, without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any census or enumeration. Uh, Joseph, in your uh, explainer on the 16th Amendment, you say uh, that we think Americans ought to read the direct-indirect distinction more narrowly as the court did for the first century of the nation's history before its historic mistake in Pollock. The best way is that the only direct taxes requiring apportionment is a head tax. It should be up to the people through their representatives to decide whether to impose any other tax, such as an income tax, a wealth tax, a carbon tax, etc. Um, tell us more about dis- post-16th Amendment disputes about the scope of Congress's power to tax under it. Uh, to what degree has this direct-indirect distinction bubbled up in the case law? And what restrictions do you think that Congress faces under the 16th Amendment today that might limit its power to tax? So um, I'll, first, I'll first say that uh, I agree with Professor Willis that after Pollock, I'll just sort of put what he said in, in historical perspective a little bit. After Pollock, the Supreme Court in several decisions that are before the 16th Amendment effectively backed off by degrees from the most sweeping interpretation of what Pollock invalidated. It's possible that the court itself understood that it was 
it would be going too far to hobble the federal government so severely to make it impossible to create um, an income tax. The federal government in the 20th century uh, became much, much uh, larger and more powerful than it had ever previously been. And in revenue terms, it did so largely on the uh, basis of the income tax. So when you think about the government that fought World War II or the Cold War, you know, this is financed essentially through the income tax. And while there were some debates in the 1920s after the passage of the 16th Amendment about exactly what counted as income from whatever scope derived, I think it's fair to say that after the New Deal um, and on through the present, there have not been any serious efforts within the uh, judiciary to revive limits on um, the congressional power to tax that would affect whether you know some corners of the income tax, for instance, actually comply with the 16th Amendment. And I think this is interesting because it contrasts with what has happened to just to just to zoom out very far to the other major powers of the Congress. I mean, one broad summary of what Congress's major powers look like is Congress has the power to tax, the power to spend money, the power to regulate commerce, and its powers under the Reconstruction Amendments. And of course, there are other minor powers, but those are the big ones. And all of the big ones, besides the power to tax, have in recent years faced more um, constraint around the edges, more paring back than has the power to tax, which is why, in a way, it's not surprising that the um, controversy over Obamacare and the individual mandate ended up resulting in a decision that said, we're not so sure about congressional power under the Commerce Clause, but you definitely have the power to do this under the power to tax. The power to tax has been, I would say, the least fettered of those um, major powers in the 20th and into the 21st century. So I don't see um, a lot of likely constraints on congressional power in that area. And the reason why that might make sense as a kind of... um, way that a judge might think about how to interpret the Constitution is partly because taxes are painful to those taxed. And so one would expect political constraint to be an effective restraint against excessive tax in a way that it might not be as effective against some other uh, forms of government power. And so my view as a matter of... of, um, constitutional politics, but also as a sort of practical matter, is that it, it makes sense to think about um, the main constraint on the power to tax being that voters don't like being taxed and will vote against you if you tax them too much. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Steve, the, the, the court has imposed few limits on the taxing power in the 20th century. In the 1920s, the court struck down a federal child labor tax uh, which imposed a tax on businesses employing children under the age of 15 uh, on the grounds that it was an impermissible attempt to intrude on the state's authority to regulate the hours of labor rather than a 
permissible attempt to raise tax revenue. Justice Antonin Scalia cited that case in his dissenting opinion in the Affordable Care Act case where Chief Justice Roberts, for a majority of the court, upheld the Affordable Care Act as a tax. Tell us about that Affordable Care Act uh, case, the NFIB case. What was the dispute between Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Scalia about the scope of Congress's taxing power and what uh, restraints uh, remain on Congress's taxing power as a result? Well, not a great deal remains. Uh, You still cannot have a direct tax, but the majority in that opinion uh, read the Hilton decision extremely broadly. I would say they took it out of context and further limited the definition of a direct tax. I would have argued beyond what I would have done. I, I suspect the dissent thought the Obamacare tax was a direct tax on human beings. The majority lifted some language out of the 1796 Hilton decision in which one of the justices said that a direct tax is one without regard to any other circumstances. And that's what Justice Roberts quoted. The the only problem with that is the justice in the Supreme Court did not quote the first part of that sentence, the independent clause, that says... I believe, but it's not my judicial opinion that a direct tax is without regard to any other circumstances. So the justice that wrote that in 1796 said, I'm not willing to make this my judicial opinion. I, I, I don't want to be too critical of the Chief Justice, but I don't think he should have lifted half of the sentence without, lift, without quoting the first half that said that disregarded the very thing he limited it to. So I would have argued, and I did argue in a brief, that the Obamacare tax was a direct tax on human beings. And that would have to be apportioned, and it couldn't be. It did not surprise me that the majority disagreed, but the majority had to go through some hoops by quoting that sentence out of context. And, and that bothers me. But one other point I would make is that the, the majority opinion, and particularly the part written by the Chief Justice, made it very clear that there were multiple limitations on the taxing power. They spoke about apportionment and decided it did not apply. Okay, they took it by, I think, misusing Hilton, but okay. One could argue that, nevertheless, that's a correct decision. But they never mentioned uniformity. And it's very difficult to imagine that anyone would speak of multiple powers, multiple limitations, and talk about apportionment, but not talk about uniformity. I think uniformity would be an as-applied challenge. At the time that the court considered it, we didn't have any exchanges. We didn't know what the cost would be. We didn't know whether they would be uniform or not. So it would have been premature to decide that. But we now have exchanges. And the tax in Florida is for not having insurance is different than the tax in Texas, and it's different from the tax in Georgia. Indeed, it's different in every single state, uh, because the exchanges vary by zip code, and not even by state. It's, it doesn't matter under the Constitution that it's different within a state, but it does matter if it's different between the states, and that has not been decided. But, saying that, I would go back to the original Constitution that we started with, Article One, Section 8, and it said that Congress has the power to lay and collect taxes, comma. And then it says duties, imposts, 
and excises have to be uniform. It never says duties, imposed and excises or taxes. It never uses the term that you've been using, indirect tax. That was used in the Federalist Papers, but it's not in the Constitution. Each of the justices in the Hilton decision raised the question, but never answered it, that maybe there's some other kind of tax that doesn't have to be apportioned and doesn't have to be uniform. In fact, in Hilton, they said maybe there would be, but that's not before us, so we're not deciding it. One of the judges said, I kind of think there is such a thing. I just don't know what it would be. So arguably, that's what the Obamacare tax is, something that doesn't have to be apportioned, something that doesn't have to be uniform. We just don't have an answer to that yet. And that's been an open question in several Supreme Court decisions over the last 225 years. I find that fascinating. Um, And it's because the Constitution does not say direct or indirect tax. It says direct tax, and then it lists those other things in the same sentence, but it doesn't exactly describe them as taxes. Fascinating. Uh, Joseph, please respond, if you will, to Steve's uh, provocative originalist or textualist reading of the taxing clause. What would be the consequences if the Supreme Court were to adopt it? Is it possible that the court might uh, adopt it uh, with a different uh, composition? And what uh, limitations would that put on Congress's taxing power moving forward? Well, I have to admit, if I've learned one thing from the um, constitutional fights over Obamacare, it is this, that just because an argument strikes me as fairly outlandish, and with all respect, that one does, it, that is no reason to be sure that courts will not uh, take it seriously and potentially adopt it. And that's happened several times already with Obamacare, although I do think that the question of um, uniformity, um, I mean, it seems to me a fairly uniform uh, tax, and I think that the court probably has, um, has already done what it's going to do, with uh, the question of the constitutionality of the Obamacare mandate. But, you know, you really have to expect that novel arguments like these um, may get a hearing depending on the, um, depending on the composition of future courts. And I think uh, part of the reason for that is because the um, debate about something like Obamacare, like the debate about the income tax, uh, that was joined in the court in Pollock in 1895 goes to fundamental questions. I mean, it's easy to get lost in sort of technical aspects of these questions, but it goes to fundamental questions about how we are structuring the political and economic life of the society. Uh, I mean, the Obamacare debate is in, in significant part a debate about whether um, on the one side, you have the argument that we need to protect people's access to health care in order to protect their access to basically living a decent uh, and, and secure life of the kind that middle-class Americans have come to expect and that that's part of what the project of the United States is to uh, ensure and that also that... Um, kind of insurance is necessary if we want people to be secure enough to be citizens of a republic. 
On the other side, you have the sort of anti-redistributive constitutional claims that have been made since the late 19th century that, you know, taking from some to give to others is uh, a sort of deep constitutional problem that even if we can't find a clause to hang it on, we can find some arguments uh, to make using existing constitutional materials as to why uh, this kind of program should not be upheld. And so I think that's what happened in Pollock, and it could happen again in the future, depending on the composition of the court and the constitutional politics around it. One thing that's a little different now, and that I think is unfortunate, is that um, at the time of the income tax fight from the 1890s to the 19-teens, that fight took place both in court and outside the courts and in party politics and in um, the platforms of presidential candidates and so on. And today, the um, questions about the constitutionality of um, taxes or, or any other programs, we more tend to consign them to um, the courts. It's not entirely true, but I think it's it's harder to have a constitutional debate now in um, ordinary politics. Um, that is a striking distinction, and it's uh, striking that in the election of 1908, uh, both the Republican and Democratic uh, platforms uh, explicitly endorsed a constitutional amendment that would authorize the direct election of senators and dealt with the question of the constitutionality of the income tax. And today, as you say, uh, it's not a party platform question. Stephen, um, as we speak, uh, Senate Republicans are proposing the possibility of repealing the Obamacare mandate in the GOP tax bill, and there are many other significant proposals in it. Uh, as we record this, we don't know what final version will pass, but what constitutional issues could you see arising out of a tax reform bill if it does indeed pass the Senate, and might any of the uh, important reforms proposed from the repeal of the deductibility of state and local property taxes to the possible repeal of the Obamacare mandate raise any constitutional issues? Well, let me first address the Obamacare mandate. I, 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 I still think it's not uniform, but that hasn't been decided, and I suspect this Congress is going to try to repeal it. They've said they're going to repeal it, so... If we take that view, it, I don't see a constitutional problem with repealing it. If they change it, I can see it provoking another argument. Uh, it would be very easy to make, by the way, the Obamacare mandate uniform, simply have, this, have it be a function of the average cost of a bronze plan nationwide, and that would be uniform. But they made it a function of the average cost of a bronze plan in the state where the taxpayer lives. That cannot possibly be uniform. Maybe we don't care. There certainly was a 1983 decision from the Supreme Court that dealt with oil, the Arctic oil case, and it jumped through a lot of hoops to tell me that a tax that taxes Alaskan oil different from Wyoming oil was uniform. I never agreed with that decision either, but it was unanimous. Um, so nothing, I agree with Joe, nothing would surprise me. Um, Anything can happen. Um, tell me the rest of your question. 
uh, that that that's it. Any other constitutional issues you could see arising? Will there be lawsuits filed uh, challenging uh, the repeals of popular deductions? And might any of them have I would uh, be, merit? I would be very surprised. There, there probably will be lawsuits, but I would be very surprised if they get anywhere. The, the only other thing we haven't discussed is the origination clause, and there's very, very little to that. Um, there were lawsuits in relation to Obamacare about origination because it started with a bill in the House. The Constitution does say that all revenue-raising bills, we don't know exactly what that is, because the Court hasn't told us, in Article One, Section 7, have to originate in the House. And what happened was the bill passed the House, the Senate amended it, which the Constitution says they can, but they amended it by striking every single word in the bill and replacing every single word. But that argument hasn't gotten anywhere. And if, if that's not a violation of origination, then I don't think anything is. And the current bill that's before the House Ways and Means is very similar. Probably at least the majority of it is the same as the Senate bill. There's not going to be a credible origination challenge, and I can't imagine any of the constitutional challenges to this. Or I haven't seen I haven't thought of any. Many thanks for that. Uh, Joseph, can you think of any constitutional challenges to the bill that might pass the Senate and the House? No, I agree with Professor Willis about this, that uh, when we say constitution, we mean potentially several different things. And if what we mean is the constitution as enforced in court, that is, people filing lawsuits to challenge what Congress has done, there's absolutely no reason to expect any of this uh, to be challenged, even though the effects of this bill are certainly not very uniform <laughs> uh, around the country. They affect certain parts of the country and certain sectors much more than others, but that's not the kind of uniformity that courts would ever be interested in enforcing. However, beyond this sort of constitution in court, there are um, two other things you could mean when you say constitutional problems. So one is the Senate and the House each have the power to set their own rules under the Constitution. And so there is what some call the small C Constitution, the set of conventions and norms by which those branches and other governmental institutions run. And this tax bill could have some problems within the Senate itself uh, based on that small C Constitution and the Byrd Rule, which we can discuss. And then the last thing that you could mean when you talk about the Constitution is a thing that people throughout much of the 19th century often meant, um, but that today we don't talk about as much, if at all, which is uh, constitutional political economy. That is, the way that the economic structure interacts with the republic as a political order. The idea here being that as the um, as several of the framers understood it, we have a republic, uh, but that depends on having independent citizens able to sustain themselves as middle-class individuals. And if we lose this sort of broad middle class and instead end up with an economic oligarchy, um, then quickly we will also lose our political republic and end up with a political oligarchy. This is why um, Thomas Jefferson uh, argued that we cannot invent too many devices for dividing 
property and fortunes. He did not want concentrated wealth to build up in a way that in his time it didn't, but that arguably it did in the Gilded Age and is again today. So my broader constitutional problem with this Republican bill, which is not an argument to be brought into court, is that by eliminating the estate tax and the alternative minimum tax and other changes, but those are the biggest um, for this purpose, this tax bill tends to lighten the tax burden on the very rich and thereby move the tax burden, uh, especially in the long run, onto middle class people in a way that will tend to um, increase rather than retard our current uh, tendency to slide toward concentrated economic and political power or what some in the 19th century would have labeled oligarchy. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, Steve, if you could respond to both of Joseph's provocative points. First, he said that the simple passage of the bill might require the changing of certain rules in the Senate. He referred to the Byrd rule, so maybe tell us what it is. And do, do, you, do you agree that that's the case? And then perhaps you could respond to his broader claim that by favoring uh, the, uh, the wealthy and increasing economic inequality, uh, the tax bill might uh, violate what Thomas Jefferson and others uh, called an anti-oligarchy uh, principle. Certainly. I, 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 I would agree with Joseph uh, in general, in, in general his principles. I have some technical quibbles with it. Uh, with regard to the first point, I, I would rather address the, the loss of the filibuster. Uh, the filibuster is not provided for in the Constitution, but it's been around for quite some time. It's slowed things down. I fear, as we move to simple majority rule in the Senate, and we've always had majority rule in the House, that we move to a merry-go-round in the tax system, and that's very bad for the economy. And right now, I know plenty of people who do estate planning, and they're worried that it's going to disappear. Their whole job is going to disappear. That's not good for business. There's a lot of things that could disappear, but they could come right back, and without a filibuster, without anything to slow us down, to gather a true consensus, then there's no reason why everything that disappears now doesn't come back in four years and then re-disappear in four years. That sort of merry-go-round is not good for the country. I, I, at one time, was not a fan of the filibuster, but I think I'm becoming a fan of it that we need something to slow us down. Even though it's not in the Constitution, I, I think that would be within the small-c Constitution. Uh, with regard to the other issue, that's certainly very provocative about concentrated wealth, and that, that worries me very much. I don't mind getting rid of the alternative minimum tax. I think that's, that is uh, confusing and difficult and could be handled in other ways. Some of the things that are covered by the Altman tax such as the exclusion for state and local bond interest, I would just repeal Section 103, and I would repeal that. And I think there might be some effort to it. So we could accomplish what the AMT attempted to accomplish, I think, in much easier, less confusing ways. As far as the estate tax is concerned, I, I, so just to be correct, I think the Senate bill keeps the estate tax and the gift tax, though it significantly increases the exemption amount. The House bill currently gets rid of the estate tax. 
keeps the gift tax, I find that very bizarre. What worries me about this, and I am no fan of the estate tax, I think it distorts the economy in terrible ways. The argument for the estate tax is breaking up wealth. But what really would be a better solution would be, in my opinion, to get rid of the estate tax, but get rid of Section 1014 of the Code, which allows for a step-up in basis at the date of death. And that way, someone who's extremely wealthy, a billionaire, right now, if they die, all their assets jump up to fair market value in terms of basis. Their heirs pay no income tax whatsoever when they sell the property. But there is an estate tax. But the estate tax, there's thousands of tax lawyers out there, and it is so easy to avoid. If instead of the estate tax, we got rid of that, but we had a carryover basis so that your heirs get the same basis you had, all of that wealth would get taxed, but it would get taxed through the income tax system. It would raise more money. It would be fairer, in my opinion. We could still have an exemption for up to a million dollars or whatever. I'm shocked that the current bill in the House repeals the estate tax but keeps the step up in basis. That, that just can't be. That's outrageous. Um, it could pass, but I would be very surprised. So we, we agree on the ultimate goal. I just think there's a much, much better way to get to the goal of keeping wealth from being concentrated, and that's to get rid of Section 1014 and get rid of the estate tax. It would put a lot of lawyers out of business in estate planning, but that's fine with me. They, I, I don't do that. I don't think they contribute a lot to the economy. Very interesting. Uh, so, so Joseph, uh, one more beat, and then we'll have closing arguments. Uh, uh, Steve has agreed with you that we could see changes in Senate rules that could make compromise more elusive and lead to a seesaw in tax policy down the road. You mentioned the Bird Rule. He mentioned the elimination of the filibuster. Tell us now what the Bird Rule is, because we're we're all waiting to hear about it. Oh, tell us tell us about what the the effect of the decline of the filibuster would be, and more broadly, tell us about the kind of changes in the Senate that you could imagine taking place uh, in an effort to get this bill passed, and then characterize as, as neutrally as you can as a historian how how unusual or redistributed the bill would be if it passed. Sure. So uh, actually, the two. Um things are connected, the uh, the filibuster rule that Professor Willis mentioned and the uh, Byrd rule. So the uh, current small-c constitutional rules in the Senate hold that, in general, you need 60 votes to pass everything. And Professor Willis, Willis is right that that leads to uh, sort of more centrist and more consistent policymaking on the whole. Um, but there are exceptions where you may only need 51 votes, and the biggest exception is this reconciliation uh, system, which is a special tax and budget process where for one budget bill a year, and the purpose of this was supposed to be reducing the deficit, I would note, um, you can pass a budget with only 51 votes. And through that bill, you can make significant changes, including changes to tax law. This bill is a reconciliation bill, so it's set up so that it should only need 51 votes um, to pass. However, 
if you're going to use this special rule, uh, this special reconciliation 51 vote procedure, then according to the Senate rules, the Byrd rule specifically holds that you can't blow a hole in the deficit outside the 10-year budget window. So ordinarily, the conventions of the Senate are that you consider 10 years of the revenue effects of a bill. But then there's also a question of, well, what happens after those 10 years? And the Byrd rule says you can't use this reconciliation system, which is there to reduce the deficit, in ways that, in fact, increase the deficit outside the 10-year window. Now, what does that mean if you're trying to cut taxes in a way that is self-consciously aimed at increasing the deficit significantly uh, in order to cut taxes? Well, what it means you have to do if you're going to comply with the rule and not alter the rule is you have to do what um, President Bush did when he enacted, um, this is President George W. Bush, enacted a tax cut in uh, 2001, uh, which essentially, in order to not have negative effects on the deficit outside the 10-year window, that bill, um, most of the important provisions were set to expire at the end of the 10-year window. So they repealed, they phased out the estate tax, it would be gone for one year, and then at the end of the 10-year window, zoom, it would, re, it would reappear. And many of the rate cuts and other things would you know, jump back up at the end of the 10-year window. Now, this is a ridiculous way to make tax policy, especially if you want the, if your whole case for the tax changes you're making is that they will create the right incentives for businesses along the way. If the, if the changes are going to expire at the end of 10 years, it sort of makes that argument ridiculous. I expect that this bill will be revised in the Senate in such a way that many of the provisions probably a lot of the provisions that actually help individuals and the middle class uh, with, you know, some modest tax cuts, those will be set to expire. Um, Maybe some of the business cuts, uh, corporate tax cuts will be permanent, but a lot of things will be set to expire in order to comply with the Byrd rule. So it's an illustration of the way that um, small c constitutional rules can lead you to make different and I think almost certainly worse um, policy decisions than you would have otherwise made. Thanks so much for that. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this important debate, and the question is the obvious one. What limitations does the Constitution impose on Congress's power to tax, and why should our listeners care about it? Uh, Steve, uh, first to you. Hmm. Well, the Constitution places itself some very important limitations, and that is apportionment and uniformity. But the courts have largely ignored those, or decided them in ways that they've really had no impact whatsoever in the last 75 years or more. So I don't, I don't see any serious limitations on the taxing power uh, in the foreseeable future. I, I like the limitation of uniformity, but I don't see the court actually applying it anywhere. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Joseph, last word to you. What limitations does the Constitution impose on Congress's power to tax, and why should our listeners care about it? So I'm going to argue slightly with the formulation of the question in my answer. The Constitution, as Professor Willis says, imposes almost no limitations on Congress's power to tax that are relevant limitations today. 
But the whole frame of this question, which is how we often ask about the relationship between the Constitution and legislation, which is what limits does the Constitution place on Congress's powers, doesn't entirely capture the most important relationship between the Constitution and the power to tax, which is the Constitution imposes obligations on Congress, not just limitations. And one of the most important obligations it imposes is an obligation to build the government in a way that can ensure a broad, secure middle class that can prevent the creation of an economic oligarchy that could undermine our political equality and our, in the end, our republic. So in order to fulfill that obligation, Congress has to enact tax legislation in a way that doesn't overly favor concentrated wealth. And um, I think this tax bill is problematic constitutionally, not in a way that a court should strike down, but in a way that should cause representatives and senators to vote against it, because the bill, in fact, redistributes wealth toward the um, oligarchs and plutocrats and away from the ordinary people who are struggling to maintain a foothold in this new Gilded Age. Thank you so much, Joseph Fishkin and Stephen Willis, for an illuminating, deep, and important conversation about this crucial power of the Constitution. We the People listeners, please check out the explainers on the taxing power and the 16th Amendment for further learning on this crucial topic. Joseph, Stephen, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Ogana Etse and Scott Bombley. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. To learn more about this week's topic, visit a thrilling new feature, our podcast resource page at constitutioncenter.org forward slash debate forward slash podcast. To help you learn more about this week's topic, you can visit the resource page to explore show notes, guest bios, related interactive constitution essays, and most important, further reading so you can continue to educate yourself about the constitution. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, and We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. The National Constitution Center is offering continuing legal education credits for select America's Town Hall programs, and soon you'll be able to get CLE credits by listening to these podcasts themselves. In-person and on-demand credit is now available in Pennsylvania. Additional states will come soon. It's a great opportunity to get credit and continue to educate yourself and will include all sorts of extra features, including the show notes that help me prepare for this podcast. They're invaluable, and I hope that you'll enjoy them. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash CLE for more information. Also, please be sure to rate our podcast on iTunes and other platforms. It helps other people learn about what we do. And finally, and this is important, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. Despite our inspiring congressional charter, we receive little government support and we rely on the generosity, engagement, and passion for lifelong learning and civic education of people like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast, and please join the National Constitution Center's family of lifelong learners who are missionaries for constitutional education. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.